Well, let's open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that where you have secured our redemption, Lord, that you sent your Son to, to bear the, the penalty of our sin. And Lord, you have united us to him. And you, as you've raised him to new life, Lord, so you've given us new life. You've given us of your spirit. Lord, you've given us new desires and new heart that desires to, to follow you and to please you. That which we, we, there is no hope of being able to do on our own. But Lord, you have given us in your word all that is needed for life and for godliness with the equipping of your of your spirit. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the, the gracious provision that we have in your Son. Lord, we thank you that as we as we read in the headlines of a world that is confused on things that it's pretty unfathomable that they're that they're confused on. But Lord, they there is a running away from you, a suppression of of your truth because of their love of sin. And Lord, we thank you that Lord, we, we have truth. Lord, you, the creator of the universe, have made yourself known to us. You have given us objective truth in your word. You've revealed of yourself to us, or you have revealed of who we are in the words of Scripture. And Lord, help us to continue to, to fight, to to believe it, to believe it when the world wants nothing of it and nothing of you. Um, Lord, help us to not be squeezed into the mold of this world, but to fight, to hold fast to the confession that you have given to us. And Lord, may we be men who would be exemplary in those things in our homes, in our workplaces, and in this church. Lord, out of a desire to see your name honored. Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you can, turn in your notebooks to the back side. It's just a little bit too... I feel like when I look up, I'm missing it. I want to look down. Uh, but turn, turn to the Build Disciplines in the back of your notebook. And I, while you're doing that, I will turn to the correct book of the Bible that I plan to be teaching on. But every week we come together and we look at the build disciplines, and those are the disciplines of faithful leadership that we strive to um, come alongside the men and help by um, God's word and his spirit to, to encourage men to grow in in these areas of, of leadership and faithfulness and that is number one the heart um, number two the home the faithful leader is a man who is worshipfully shepherding his heart toward the God of the word and then is stepping into his home to care for those with the word of God that man is also the man who steps into the GBC family with God's word and shepherds them towards the word of the God, the God of the word. And, and the qualifications to be able to do that are outlined. 
in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. There are qualifications for what faithful leadership in the church looks like. The qualifications of a deacon and an elder. Uh, men that are striving after a faithful pursuit of the Lord, both in their own personal lives, in the lives of the home, and in the lives of the church, are doing so in a way that is um, aiming at those qualifications of faithful service that are listed in God's Word. We want to come alongside you and um, encourage you in your pursuit of those. And, and if we are to step into our families, we're going to step into the lives of others, and even as we're going to we're going to interact with God's Word on our own and our own personal devotion, our own personal Bible reading, our own personal prayer life, we want to rightly understand what God is saying. We want to be, so we want to be careful to to not bring our own ideas into God's Word, and those are the things that we're sharing as we step into the lives of others. But we're sharing what God has said. And so we're, we're, we're diligent to find out what, what has God revealed and what, what does he mean by what he said. So those are some of the areas that we have been focusing on in Disciplines 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Um, a month ago during our discipline discussion, we talked about what does it mean to be faithful. <clears throat> um, faithfulness in Scripture, we talked about what is faith, what is faithfulness, what does it mean that God is faithful, and what does it mean for us to be faithful. This morning, I want to talk about faithfulness by way of illustration. And to do that, let's open our Bibles together to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, and we'll begin in verse 1. So 2 Timothy 2, and we'll, we'll be here for the rest of this, this morning for the conversation. So beginning in verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You know, as most of you know, after build, the next layer of equipping for the men of Grace Bible Church is the trust, where we train men who have demonstrated faithfulness in theology, hermeneutics, how to teach God's word, how to step into the lives of others and proclaim God's word. And the seed of that ministry is found right here in this verse. Timothy is instructed to entrust the things that he heard from Paul to men in the church. And why was apostolic teaching to be passed down to the men in the church? So they could be entertained by it? So they could speculate about it? Have their intellects tickled or win a debate? No. But so they could pass on what they've learned along to others to pass along what God has revealed in his word and through the apostles. So the men that Timothy taught were then to go out and teach others in the home, in the church, in the world. And what kind of men were to be equipped to step into the lives of others and teach? Faithful men. Who is called to be faithful in this text? Well, it's the men who are going to be taught to teach others. And that includes Timothy, as well as those who he, whom he'd be teaching. Which is why Paul opens with the exhortation in verse 1 to Timothy, to be strong in the graces in Christ Jesus. Timothy needs God's grace for faithfulness, as do we. And that's what, that's what Bill is aiming at. Building the disciplines of faithful leaders Men who would step into the lives of others with God's word are to be faithful men. 
not perfect men, but faithful. Without the grace of God, we cannot muster up faithfulness. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Like Timothy, our faithfulness is dependent upon the grace of God. And it requires us to abide in Christ. On our own, we can do nothing, but the man, the man who, is, who does abide in Christ will bear much fruit. And in this very passage in 2 Timothy, Paul provides three distinctive qualities of faithful service by way of illustration. The first, beginning in verse 3, is single-minded devotion. Verse 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in the active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. A soldier must be willing to suffer hardship. He doesn't abandon his post when things get difficult. He must be constantly devoted to his task. To fail to fulfill his role carries steep penalties with devastating consequences. Uh, One commentator said, A soldier doesn't work a 9-to-5 job or even a 60-to-70 long hour per week job. He's a soldier 24 hours per day, every day of the year. All that he has, his body, his health, his skills, his time, is to serve the military. Even when on leave, he's subject to recall, without warning. And whenever he is ordered into a dangerous duty, he is expected to put his life on the line without question, without hesitation. Everyday entanglements, earthly matters, where he will eat, sleep, personal relationships, are not to have a hold on him in such a way that would prevent him from doing and performing his duty. Because his aim, verse 4, is to please the one who enlisted him. At all costs, the things that are irrelevant to his soldiering are not to interfere with the fulfillment of his duty. In a similar way, Faithful men are to be single-mindedly devoted to please the Lord Jesus Christ who has called us into his service. Did he call you as a husband? As a father? Faithfully fulfill your duty as he instructs in the word. A faithful man aims to not be distracted by those things that would distract him from fulfilling his duty as a man of God. As a husband, as a father, as a churchman, as someone who steps into the lives of others. Does your shepherding of your heart resemble the faithful soldier, singularly devoting, devoted to pleasing the one who called you into service? Or are you too easily distracted by those things irrelevant to pleasing the Lord? The second distinctive of faithful service in this, pa- in this passage is disciplined, humble preparation. Verse 5. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. In the ancient Greek games, which continued into the Roman Empire and were still being held in Paul's time, every participant had to meet a number of qualifications. He birth, he had to be a true-born Greek. Training, he had to prepare for at least 10 months for the games. And he actually had to swear to that in front of a statue of Zeus. And three, he had to compete specifically within the rules of a given event. And as an athlete prepares night and day for months, even years for the competition, he sacrifices, he endures injury, hardship. It takes endless preparation and planning. 
Right? And those are just table stakes for an athlete that wants to compete in the games. They don't win you the prize, but that's just the expectation. If you were to show up and compete, you, you've been preparing. But on the day of competition, all of that effort, labor, sacrifice will not matter if he had the rules to the event wrong. There are no consolation prizes for those that are disqualified because they're competing to a different standard. Unlike today's collegiate swimmers, athletes in Paul's day don't get to redefine the rules and standards by which they compete. They don't make up their own rules. They must submit themselves to the established rules. And how do you prepare yourself for competition Every day as you step into this world, into your home, into your family, do you wake up and scroll over to, the, over to the track and find out what you're competing against when you get there? Or do you have a long-term view? You study your opponent, you plan, you strategize. You persevere through the difficulty, the difficult, painful preparation and shepherding your heart, shepherding, persevering when getting up to spend time in prayer to the Lord and hearing from in His Word is about as appealing as training for an Olympic marathon in the morning. Do you persevere? How do you prepare yourself to step into the lives of others in your small group or your family with God's word? Do you give it forethought? Do you plan ahead so that your words will be those, according to Ephesians 4.19, those that would be edifying, according to the need of the moment, that would give grace to those who hear? Or do you wing it? How do you assess your own faithfulness in this area? How do you decide what to do next? Are you careful to submit yourself to the wisdom of God's word in every circumstance, humbly submitting yourself to God's word? Or are you trusting in your own, in your own understanding, establishing your own standard of righteousness, and doing what is right in your own eyes? Are you competing according to your own rules and not the, the established rules? The third distinctive of faithfulness, we can see in, in verse 6, is patient and hopeful labor. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. So Paul has gone from a soldier to an athlete, now a farmer. And without diving into the different ways that this verse might be translated, all of them have the same logical progression. A farmer works hard, and then he receives the harvest. While an athlete might start to reach some of the benefits of his preparation after just, a, after just a few short weeks of training, he might start to build his endurance or see his strength and stamina increase, a farmer doesn't get to reap the benefit of his labor until many months later at the time of harvest. A farmer might get up early and go to bed late and may have no return to show for it for many months. His labor is not for instant gratification, immediate reward, but he has a long-term view. He is working hard now for the eventual harvest. His daily labor is defined by patience, delayed gratification, and hope in the future reward in a farmer. A farmer is often the one who works alone. And a Christian is much like this. Is much like a farmer. There may be occasional times of excitement and satisfaction, but the daily routine is often, in itself, unattractive and unrewarding. But whatever our day-to-day -day duties involved, we are promised an eternal reward. We might be underpaid, un unappreciated at work, misunderstood at home or in the church. 
We may not get the immediate feedback or result that we hope for as we step into the lives of others. We may not feel like we can see what God is doing. We don't see the fruit or reward manifesting itself. Day by day, we drag ourselves in front of God's word. We enter into difficult conversations with our wives and our children because that's what faithfulness looks like. Maybe we don't see the benefit just now. Do you trust that the Lord... You trust the Lord that his word holds true, that he is trustworthy. We can keep daily laboring, not because we're seeking to establish some righteousness of our own, but out of gratitude for what he has done for us in uniting us to his son, in freeing us from the tyranny of sin and giving us a hope, giving us a future, and promising us a future inheritance with him. Hebrews eleven six says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Man, this is hard. Do you find yourself often resembling the derelict soldier, the ill-prepared and maybe shortcut-taking athlete, or the lazy farmer? Go to the Lord. You know, if we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Abide in Christ. We can't fulfill this calling on our own. Like Timothy, we need his grace. Go to the Lord. Faithfulness isn't measured in a single day, but by a long-term pursuit of the Lord in all things as we seek to love him, motivated by his glory and his work for us on the cross with a view, like the farmer, to his future coming, a future glory, a future reward, a future separation from sin. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you recognizing that we are that often that derelict farmer. We run into our high calling of faithful fathers and husbands without thought, without preparation. Lord, we often are discouraged because we don't see the benefits, the reward, the the outcome that we hope for and desire. And we, we waver in our faith that what you said is true and that what is awaiting us is more precious than anything that this world has to offer. Lord, may we be encouraged. May we, may we live in light of your future coming. May we live in light of our future glorification. Lord, may we be faithful men, dependent upon your spirit, dependent upon your word. Lord, we confess our, our own weakness, but Lord, your word is sufficient. Your work is sufficient. Lord, we thank you for what you've done by uniting us to your son. And Lord, may we, ex- may we out of a desire to pour out our, our lives as living sacrifices to you, walk humbly, submitting ourselves to what you've revealed in your word is true, believing it. Lord, help us in our unbelief to hold fast to what you have said and to, to faithfully follow after you. As we step into our homes, we step into ministry. May we pursue these character traits of faithful men. Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen. The first thing I want to do is... uh...
just discuss the homework a little bit for the next time you met her together. Essentially what this uh, assignment is intended to do is to help you consider with questions one and two the relationships that tend to be most impacted by conflict in your life, uh, which relationships just maybe gravitate toward conflict sometimes, uh, most easily, most often you find in those relationships quarrels, conflict, disagreements, uh, and then to actually help uh, you men take a real life relationship, a uh, real life conflict that's already in the rearview mirror, and then apply biblical wisdom to that conflict. So to help you think through what were the circumstances of that conflict, and then the go back. Maybe you've already done this, and this is going to be a really easy assignment. Kudos to you, if that's the case. Uh, but to take this, this conflict and consider again, okay, what were the desires, expectations that were in me that eventually produced this conflict? What was I wanting in the moment? What was I desiring, expecting, holding on tightly to that caused me to contribute whatever amount of sin I brought into the conflict. Uh, maybe it was something small, maybe it was a, a significant disagreement uh, that you had with somebody and where sin leaked out of you. Uh, and so to reconsider what was happening in your heart at the time and then to take that same conflict and consider uh, ways that you could have been better prepared for it, things that in the moment of the conflict uh, would have produced something different in you, uh, what should I have been believing, desiring more in the moment than the things that I was desiring, uh, what truths was I, was I not believing, what truths should I have been believing. Uh, and really, the the homework assignment with this, I took that approach so that helpfully, uh, if you spend time revisiting uh, something that's already happened, then you can be better prepared for the next time uh, something like that occurs. So if you if you're already considering ways that you erred at the heart level. And then what would have changed the outcome, at least from your perspective? What would have changed your participation? What would have changed uh, what was coming out of you in that moment? Uh, basically, you're just uh, shepherding your heart in that way for the next time. Uh, getting your heart aligned with the truth to say, where do I need to be when these opportunities arise? Uh, the next time you know, one of my kids hasn't done what I asked right away, uh, the next time, you know, some disappointment arises, uh, a ways, I, ways I've been disappointed with my wife, perhaps. Um, what, what truths do I need to be considering? What truths should I have considered last time that would have changed me 
made me a different man in the midst of that. Uh, and in that way, you can be tucking away some truths uh, and storing those up for the future. And so that's what the, the homework uh, is, is kind of walking you through. If you have any questions about that, uh, let me know. But that's that. All right. This morning we're, we're talking about forgiveness, reconciliation, and conflict resolution. Uh, big, big topic. We'll just cover some basic principles this morning. Um, just so I don't forget, if you're interested in further reading on this subject, so I'm going to give you three, three useful resources on these topics. Uh, first, Robert Jones' book, Pursuing Peace. These should all be at the, uh, the book table, at least a couple of these books. <clears throat> so Robert Jones wrote a book called Pursuing Peace. Uh, that is a guide to peacemaking. I think it's uh, just a really useful book to give you a comprehensive idea of, of what Scripture says on this subject of conflict resolution. Uh, one thing to be aware of in that book is he takes a, uh, a conditional view of forgiveness so that, uh, in his view, forgiveness can't be uh, extended and granted until the person being forgiven seeks it. That's not the biblical view. Um, so just be aware of that in, in Robert Jones' book, but it's a really helpful book. Uh, another one is Alfred Poirier. Um, Alfred Poirier, if you're trying to spell his last name, P-O-I-R-I-E-R. P-O-I-R-I-E-R, -I -I -E The Peacemaking Pastor. What it, two things useful about that book is that because it's written with the pastor in mind, uh, it's church focused, so it focuses on conflict resolution specifically in church life. And uh, even if you're not a pastor, that is just a helpful book I found to think through the necessity of peace in the church. And one thing I love about that book that I haven't seen in, in a, a ton of other books on the subject is he prioritizes the glory of God to peacemaking, um, knowing what the, just having our set, sights set on the glory of God and how that sets a trajectory for peacemaking. So I, I love that aspect of that book as well. And then the, the last resource is John MacArthur's book, The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness. The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness by John MacArthur. So those are super helpful you know, in, in your spare time if you're looking for some books to read or you know, looking for what's what's next on your reading list. You can add those. Go to Proverbs chapter 17 as we just open up the discussion for for this topic. And if you have uh, 
if you have questions, and I'm, I'm just gonna launch. If you have questions, throw up your hand. You're not gonna interrupt or bother me if you have a question in the middle of whatever I'm saying. And we can interact a little bit over these things. But Proverbs 17, chapter one, helps highlight the importance of knowing these things for our home. It says, better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Better is a dry morsel, some crusty bread, old food with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Uh, if, if you have to choose uh, your lot in life, you can have peace in your home where there's love and tranquility and the members of your household enjoy one another and are not continually at odds with each other and poverty essentially uh, that would actually be preferable to sufficient or abundant wealth with continual strife and that's coming from the wisdom of God through Solomon poverty with peace is better than wealth with strife or constant contention Maybe you feel like, man, I got the, both of, the worst of both worlds. Hopefully not. What about chapter 21, 9? Uh, even thinking about our marriages. Proverbs 21, 9 says, It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. So, uh, Ruth in the heat of the Middle Eastern sun is preferable. Making a, a bed there, living there, is better than sharing a house with a quarrelsome wife, a wife who is constantly contentious and doesn't allow there to be peace. And then verse 19 says something similar. It's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. A woman who is quarrelsome, so she's at odds with others. She doesn't have peace with others, namely in her home. And she's fretful. She doesn't have uh, God's own peace for her own heart. She's anxious. She's worried. She's burdened by the cares of the world in a way that prevents her from having joy. She's an anxious woman. Uh, those things are not desirable. Um, even making, uh, in all of those verses, you see the relationship to the living situation. Where you live, specifically, being impacted by the peace that is in those places, the peace that you're allowed to have. And so scripture really does put a premium in this under the sun life, this temporal life. It puts a premium on having peace. Uh, and we play a significant role 
in that very quality of our own lives and having peace. You can't control your kids entirely. You can't control your wife entirely. Um, you have been called by God. We have as men to master our own selves, but to also be a blessing and an influence in our homes, as well as the church by extension. Uh, this is your church. Uh, God's giving you this as your church. Your, uh, he's giving you a home. Then we're called to lead and leave a godly impact in both of those arenas, in our homes and in the church. And who we are as peacemakers is, in, in one sense, determinative in, in what we bring into those arenas of life, into our homes, into our, our church body, this church body. And so this is really a, a crucial aspect of uh, biblical leadership, of being a godly man, is being one who is himself uh, associated with, acquainted with peace. Um, we as men have to be peacemakers. We have to be associated with peace, uh, with God, obviously. Uh, we have to know God's peace for ourselves. Uh, but also in the relationships, the various relationships that God has called us to be stewards of, we have to know how to promote peace in those relationships. So for, for this morning, I want to just quickly walk through uh, four or five tools that we must be equipped with to practice successful peacemaking. Uh, five tools. Did I give you four or five on the, on the outline? Four, they were doing four. I have five written here and, and only, got to, only got to four. So four tools. Yeah, add your own, later. <laughs> you figure it out. <laughs> what else do I need that Omri didn't mention? And you can have your five. If uh, you know making that correction is painful for you on the on the page, so we must be equipped with four tools, at least four, if we would practice successful peacemaking. And number one, um, as in all things, if you're going to be successful and truly God honoring in absolutely anything, any area of life, it has to begin with a knowledge of God, with God Himself, uh, Tozer. A.W. Tozer famously said, as you know, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And the same thing is true in the specific area of conflict resolution. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. As Paul uh, descends and, and closes out this letter, his final words to his son in the faith, Timothy. He is uh, giving him one last charge to faithfully dispatch his pastoral duties 
And this comes on the heels of what he shouldn't be, as he discusses the, the false teachers who are uh, pursuing godliness as a means of their own selfish and greedy gain. He calls Timothy in chapter 6, verse 11, to flee those things, a love of money, uh, perverted desires, insincere desires, wrong motivations, all of those things. Flee from these things, verse 11, you man of God, and pursue these things, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Uh, another passage, like if you were here on Sunday, just like Zephaniah puts in front of us things to seek, things to pursue, righteousness, uh, godliness to pursue. Paul does the same thing, following in the footsteps of prophets who came before him. Pursue these godly characteristics, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And then he lays this charge on him. I charge you. And before he gets to the charge, he wants him to know some things about the way he's charging him. In the presence of God, I charge you. This is the God who gives life to all things. And in the presence of Christ Jesus, that is the one who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. So in the presence of that God and in the presence of that Messiah, that Jesus, do this. Keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of that one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep the commandment without stain or reproach. Uh, this would have been the the very teaching that he was entrusted to pass on to others in the church. The gospel, all of its implications, sound doctrine in keeping with both Old and New Testament revelation. Keep that commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. And then he gets distracted in a, in a way with these things, who Christ is and who God is, which he will bring about at the proper time in reference to God, bringing about Christ's own appearing. Who's going to do this? Well, it's God who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, that's who Paul has in view. That is the one he is considering when he dispatches this charge to keep the commandment, the teaching. Looking as pure as it actually is with your own life, the way that you live, as you teach Timothy, as you go about your pastoral duties, this is the one you ought to have in mind. The blessed God, the only sovereign, the king of kings, the one who is Lord of lords. Uh, there, what he means is he's the one who is a king inherently. Kingship is inherent to God's own nature. 
and he reigns in that way by right over the ones who play king or the ones who have kingship given to them. Uh, and the same thing is true of his lordship. He possesses that by right of the ones who are lording or doing the, the playing the role of a lord, playing the role of a king. There are others who play the role of a lord temporarily. And this God who I'm speaking of, Timothy, before whom you must keep this commandment unstained, he's the one who possesses kingship and lordship by right. He possesses immortality, only he does, unable to die, dwells in light that can't be approached, uh, can't be grasped or... The idea there of, of approaching is that he's still remaining separate and all of who he is, all of his glory separates him from absolutely everything else in creation whom no man has seen or can see. So because God is invisible, he's unable to be seen and has never been seen. It is that one that he finishes that section saying to that one, to him, be or belong, honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So Paul here, as he dispatches this charge, lays the weight of God's own character on Timothy and reminds Timothy of who God is. And finishes with this thought that God is worthy of all honor that there is to be had and all eternal dominion that actually exists. God possesses, uh, deserves, to him belong all of those things. Now, as we think about this knowledge of God impacting how we think about peacemaking, that view of God as the one to whom all honor belongs, has to be at the forefront of our minds. Not a passing thought, not a fleeting thought, not a temporary motivation, but that has to undergird absolutely everything that we think about peacemaking because that's the foundational motivation. If you don't think of God as what we just read here, namely the one who deserves all honor, uh, to whom belong all honor, that even if you don't think of the honor that you currently and ever have given to him, even as not fully making the mark, right? The honor on, on my very best day, in my most pure moments, and with the most blameless motivations that I've ever had in life, God is infinitely more worthy than even those, than the motivation to actually go pursue peace and the significance of the what peace is actually accomplishing, actually bringing God honor, is just going to be lacking at that point if that thought of God isn't in our minds. We have to think of God and his greatness in those terms so that we have the, the right motivation to go about pursuing peace. Think about the implication, uh, you know, when in a moment, 
what pursuing peace requires in this, we call them hard conversations, uh, you know, with between me and my wife, we were having a hard conversation. It's intense. She's pointing something out to you. You don't like the way she's bringing it to you, but really what makes for peace is you to humble yourself and not address the way she's bringing it to you, but admit that she's right about whatever she's seeing, even though she's bringing it to you in a way that you don't prefer. What motivation do you have to actually humble yourself before your wife in that moment if it's not this? You know, in this moment, I'm going to do what most makes for peace and be humble, even though everything in me does not want to do that. Because what's on the line, what's at stake here is God's own glory, God's honor. There's an opportunity in this conversation, in these very moments, for me to worship God and ascribe to him the glory and honor and worth that he deserves that I ascribe to him. And that can all happen if I would just say, you know what? You're right. I was wrong. And if more than having my way and getting her to see her part of the sin, you know, her 10%, I just embrace my 90. Or instead of trying to get her to see her 90, I just embrace my 10. That God deserves the glory from us in that way. Uh, men who have not had this thought, if we do not practice thinking of God in these terms, then we will lack sufficient motivation to pursue peace the way we should in the in a given moment. As you think about, uh, as you do the homework, you know, in 13 days from today, because that's when I'm assuming most of you do it. Uh, <laughs> um, when you revisit that conflict, that, that actually happened. Just test drive that. You know, in the moment, was I so passionate about God getting glory from me, about ascribing worth to my maker and my savior in that moment that I insisted on my own way? Probably not. <laughs> what was I wanting instead of the opportunity God was handing to me, right? Serving up on a silver platter Hey, just be humble and you can glorify me. That's why you exist anyway. That's why I saved you. That's what you said you wanted is to just bring me glory. You prayed for that this morning, didn't you? Here's the opportunity. Make peace by being humble. The man who is consistently saturating his heart with high thoughts of God and his own worth is best prepared to step into a conflict and do whatever is necessary. Maybe that's humbling yourself. Maybe that means having a hard conversation. Maybe that means having the same conversation and patiently laboring with the person who is in the wrong. But that's all going to be motivated initially by God's glory, wanting to highlight his greatness. The Another way that a knowledge of God impacts our pursuit of successful peacemaking is not only knowing that God is the God of glory, but knowing that God is the God of peace. God himself is 
the God of peace. He's called that uh, all throughout the New Testament. Uh, and we see that demonstrated in Old and New Testament is God's love for and pursuit of peace. And peace is actually a part of his very own nature. Just by way of uh, example, in Genesis, those opening chapters of Genesis, you see perfect harmony, perfect peace at work in the very creation between God himself. There is never any suggestion in those chapters that when God is commanding that light come into existence uh, and what I think is happening there is that the God, as he commands it, God is creating it and then orchestrating it. I think the various members of the Trinity are together working those things. Uh, I think you, that gets clearer in verse 26 when he says, let us. Right? He gives a command to the other members of the Trinity. Let us make man in our image. And so they do that. So the idea is God is calling light into existence. Uh, the son is creating what the father commanded right through Christ are all things made Colossians 1 uh, John 1 say that it was Christ was the means by which all things came into existence and then the spirit you see him working you know hovering over the water that idea of uh, a management a meticulous oversight in that sense both creation and uh, salvation sort of parallel each other with the father orchestrating and ordaining these things, the son accomplishing them, and then the spirit applying them. So in, in creation and in salvation, there's perfect harmony in the Trinity. They don't have varying wills, right? You don't see one member, hey, you said light, but I'd like something else, or you know, let the dry land appear, but what about this? There's this perfect harmony and unity that exists in God's own nature. And so God being the God of peace can be seen in, in creation and then more specifically in salvation. Just consider that uh, there's a each member of the Trinity is involved in peace. So there's a, a past reality from our perspective, at least if you're a Christian, what, what he did in salvation and then what he's currently doing. Uh, as one who is saved. Just consider, first off, that the Father orchestrated and oversees peace. It, the gospel was his idea, the God the Father's idea, uh, and once he saves Christians into a church, he's still overseeing peace. Uh, just by virtue of this being his household, the the, the peace is, is ultimately due him, right? Peace at, that happens at Grace Bible Church is ultimately, we owe it to the Father's good management of his home and the way he's instructed us and the way he's knit us together and unified us in his body. So he orchestrated peace uh, in salvation. He currently oversees peace. The Son accomplished it, the peace that the Father orchestrated and ordained the son God the son actually accomplished that in the cross and then currently he mediates peace between God and believers uh, there's one mediator between God and man first Timothy 2 5 says 
And so the son is also, in addition to the father, zealous for peace, so much so that he shed his own blood for it and then continues currently to mediate and advocate for peace between the father and the son, even praying on our behalf in real time. And then the spirit enabled peace, applied peace um, when he saved us. And then currently facilitates peace in the church. Philippians, or excuse me, Ephesians 4.3 says. Um, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace is what we must be eager to keep. And so each member of the Trinity, just to, to sort of heighten our thinking about this very quality in our own lives, in the church, in relationships, uh, we ought to be as zealous for peace as God himself is. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul, that's one way he motivates the reception of his own instructions as he teaches them that things must be done decently and in order. Y'all are all over the place and your ambition and factions happening in Corinth. Well, God is the God of peace is what he reminds them of. That is why all things must be done decently and in order. And so a knowledge of God is really the first tool that we have to have, that God is the God of glory. He is also the God of peace that's going to help us practice successful peacemaking. The second tool that we must have if we would practice successful peacemaking is a consideration of the gospel. We've already touched on this a little bit, but a few ways to consider how the gospel impacts practically successful peacemaking first off it reminds us that god initiates peace god himself initiates peace and that's crucial uh, particularly for us as men to understand <clears throat> in passages that describe the gospel uh, you never see man initiating john three sixteen: for god loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but have eternal life. God was the one who sent Jesus because he desired to reconcile sinners with himself. God initiated reconciliation. He initiated peace. Uh, for us, as those called to imitate God um, and lead in our homes, for example, you must be the one who initiates peace. If there's strife between you and your wife, don't wait for her to figure it out. Don't be fearful of her response. And so you're passive, passively waiting for her to come to you. Go initiate peace. Right? There's an issue here. We need to we need to figure this out. Um, hey, I know that important thing on the calendar that's coming up. Um, I'm going to cancel that and, and not go hang out with the fellows because we got, we got things to work out. I'm going to lead by initiating peace here and demonstrate uh, a godly imitation by prioritizing peace. If, uh, if there's fault to be confessed, initiate. Be the first one to do that. Don't don't 
set a, a pattern of, you know what, I confess my sin, always following you. After I can get you to submit, then I'll admit I was wrong, you know, wherever I was. No, lead her. Demonstrate for your wife and even for your children what godly humility looks like in your prizing of peace by initiating. And even, uh, just again, by implication, if there's a strife between members in your home, children to children, uh, roommate to roommate, wife to children, uh, it's incumbent on us to actually gain the wisdom, gain the biblical clarity that we have to have to step into that and contribute to the peacemaking that needs to take place. Maybe that takes more study from you. So we're not going to go to bed tonight, babe, because I'm going to stay up and spend some time thinking about this issue that we got to work out in our home, because that's my job. I need to lead in that way, gain the biblical clarity, and then I can help wife and children chart a path forward, if that's what it takes. So we can just, I mean, that in the gospel, God's initiation actually provides a helpful pattern for us, some useful encouragement. Uh, the gospel also reminds us that God actually reconciles. That's not to be missed. Uh, Romans 5 articulates this reality in, in several ways, in not very many words. So Romans 5, chapter, uh, or verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we, now, we have now received the reconciliation. All of those mentions of the reconciliation that has been accomplished, which was costly, right? Reconciliation cost God his own son's life. We should expect reconciliation to cost us, uh, cost us time, energy, to suffer the loss of being wrong, being willing to be wronged and not hold it against others. Uh, reconciliation to actually restore uh, a relationship so that there's no longer strife but there's peace that is a costly endeavor but God has accomplished that if, if we consider the gospel then that makes us all the more eager to experience the fruit of the gospel which is earthly reconciliation where we can have it. Uh, the, the gospel also reminds us, a consideration of the gospel, that God actually forgives. And it shows us how God forgives. Just uh, a few ways to think about God's forgiveness in ways specifically that we can, can imitate. Uh, God forgives willingly. He forgives fully. God forgives graciously. God forgives sincerely and even God forgives repeatedly. We can model each of those things. We can also, like God and like the pattern we see set for us in the gospel, 
a, a willingness to forgive, a fullness of forgiveness, graciousness in our forgiveness, sincerity in our forgiveness, and repeatedly forgiving. Um, each of those things is true. Um, you can see that, for example, in a passage like Exodus 34, 7. No sin, no wrongdoing is too great for God to forgive. And this would have been an, a tremendous encouragement for Israel at this point in redemptive history because they have greatly offended God by building the golden calf. Some, uh, it seems like 80 days this thing was, was around, 80 plus days. But God reminds them of his own character in chapter 34, verse 7, when he says that he is the kind of God, Yahweh is, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, etc. Uh, just to consider that phrase in the middle of that verse, that he is one characteristically who does this. He forgives what might be considered iniquity, what might be considered transgression or fit into a category of sin. Uh, just three different terms to describe some offense against God so that it leaves the reader hearing those words and going, well, regardless of, of what I've committed, whether in my mind that qualifies as iniquity or transgression or sin, God is the kind of God who is willing to forgive all of it. And so with that kind of fullness of forgiveness available, having been accomplished by this God for us, we too can forgive fully iniquity and transgression and sin. Uh, even the graciousness, uh, the lavishness of God's forgiveness in a passage like Ephesians 4 verse 32 is in view. There, Paul gives this instruction. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's the pattern for the forgiveness that we're supposed to extend to others, to one another. Is that we ought to be kind tender-hearted such that this happens forgiveness of each other in the same way that God in Christ has also forgiven us and obviously that's uh, in every way we can model God's forgiveness we ought to uh, some people have taken a, a passage like that and said well God only forgives repentant people therefore I should only forgive repentant people well God also uh, offered up a substitute in the you know to accomplish our full forgiveness. We're not called to forgive like that. You know you need a substitute if you want forgiveness. But uh, you would be maybe you would be surprised to to know that some people impose that kind of restriction on forgiveness. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that that's what's in view there. 
but the the gracious way that God is forgiven, the full and complete way, sincere way that God is forgiven, I think is what's in view. That's what Paul is calling the church to. Uh, thirdly, this uh, the third tool that we must be equipped with if we would practice successful peacemaking is to to have the character of peacemakers. To have the character of peacemakers. And this is, again, as you work through, the, through your homework, there's ways, if you're thinking carefully enough, I am sure there are ways that you can think you stepped into a, con a past conflict ill-prepared because things in your character, in your life that you had already been practicing were not as they should have been. Um, you know what, I can, in that moment when I was in a conflict, I was being selfish, I was being stubborn, I was being arrogant, not willing to humble myself. Can you see those in other areas of your life anywhere? Selfishness, stubbornness, an unwillingness to listen, pride, being too quick to speak. And so the person, again, who's well prepared to step into a conflict is the one who, outside of the conflict, has already been pursuing godliness at a high level. At a, in a consistent way. You can write down James 3, 13 through chapter 4, verse 6. Let me just go there and, and help you see the connection. So James 3, 13. This comes just prior to James asking the question, as you know, in chapter 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? So then he diagnoses what's going on in their conflicts. Well, just prior to that, he spends time unpacking, as John recently did for us in the Equipping Hour series, what characterizes wisdom from below and wisdom from above. And he gives us those two categories to show us here's the difference between the fruit of both. The difference that wisdom... that holding on to earthly wisdom, which is really foolishness, versus godly wisdom, which is true wisdom, the difference holding on to one or the other makes in your life is the things like what's described in verses 13 through 18 of James chapter 3. So he asked this leading question, who among you is wise and understanding? You know, anybody want to raise their hand at that, that question? Well, Whatever you're thinking, if you would put yourself in that category, he says, let him show his good behavior by his good behavior, his deeds and the gentleness of, of wisdom. It's not the person who in their own mind is convinced I'm wise and understanding. But it, any man who would wear those titles, who's deserving of those titles, this is how you know your very own conduct as is displayed in the gentleness of wisdom. Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, 
Do not be arrogant and so lie to the truth, i.e. don't say, don't claim wisdom and understanding while these things are true of you, jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. That is to go against the truth. You are not wise. You are not understanding. You are foolish and selfish and jealous and bitter and ambitious. By contrast, that is not the wisdom that comes from above. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every vile practice. So then he spells out what exactly the wisdom from above is. This is the contrast to wisdom from below. Demonic wisdom. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. It's interesting that he gives that order initially. Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. Not first peaceable, then pure. But it pursues uh, blamelessness, primarily a holiness before God. It is characterized by that primarily. And it's these other things, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering or steadfast, without hypocrisy. And the, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So godly wisdom produces and is saturated by just peace in the life. True peace, not an avoidance of conflict that you know masquerades as peace because I just never deal with hard things. But a real peace. I resolve conflicts. I see things through. I go apply godly wisdom to difficult situations. Uh, and I do it with the gentleness, meekness, reasonableness, purity, etc. that James mentions. The source of quarrels and conflicts is what he mentions in chapter 4, verse 1. Your pleasures that wage war in your members, it's the very desires that we have. That's what produces conflicts. And that's key because this demonstrates that the person who's going to avoid conf uh, conflict and have true peace is the one who's going to purify his inner life, purify his pleasures, his cravings, his desires. Which is why we, again, started where we did, a knowledge of God. If what you desire most is the glory that God so rightly deserves out of you, if that is your preeminent and pervasive desire, then when you don't get other things, even if they're good things like obedience from children, uh, intimacy from my wife, or some other reasonable expectation, if my pervading desire is God's glory, then those moments when some craving, some pleasure, some desire is not met, then it meets a superior desire, which is God's honor, God's glory. And so I view those 
moments when I'm not getting what I want as really opportunities to get what I want in pleasing God. Uh, James continued with, with the diagnosis there spelled out in verses 2 and following. The problem is that they lust and don't have, so they commit murder. They're envious and don't obtain, so they fight and quarrel. He says you don't have because you don't ask. So not only do they have sinful cravings, but they have a sinful self-sufficiency. They're not even asking and depending on God for the things that they desire. But then they have an additional problem. Even when they do ask, verse 3, they don't get it because they ask with wrong motives. So that they can spend it on their own pleasures. Again, God's glory not being what motivates them. It's their own pleasures, not what would do what would make most for the honor of God. He calls this spiritual adultery, uh, spiritual enmity with God and friendship with the world. You can see uh, other lists of peacemaking qualities in a, a passage like Galatians 5, where the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit are listed. Uh, what not to be and then what to be. What to put off, what to put on. Ephesians 4 is another passage that gives you a list. Colossians 3. It gives succinct character lists. That's a good way uh, to, to diagnose even conflicts. Maybe that's helpful to you as you work through the homework is to pull up one of those lists and say, okay, what was I not being? What things should I have put off? What things next time should I resolve to put on? And just, you know, create a list. Don't be this, be this. Pursue this, don't pursue this. And then what convictions, what thoughts, what truths do I need to hold in my mind from now until the next conflict in you know, five minutes from now that are gonna help me, help motivate me, help remind me to be these things for the right reasons, right? So, so that you're not mechanically, uh, mindlessly trying to go about accomplishing obedience in your own strength, but you're actually by faith believing what God says is true about himself, about yourself. You know, a, a simple thought like God is great and worthy of glory, I am not great and worthy of glory. I'm not those things. So if somebody doesn't honor me, I don't deserve it anyway. I'm nobody. I shouldn't be personally offended. Uh, even in, a, in a, a situation, for example, like with kids. Well, God says they should show me honor. Yeah, but not for your sake. Not because you're so honorable, he commands them to honor you. That That command comes from God himself to the child because he has ordered the world this way. It's right for children to give honor to parents. So it has nothing to do with your personal character, right? Don't be offended for those reasons. Remembering a truth like that, you can therefore say, okay, I need to be humble. I need to be uh, not offended for my own glory. And then finally, the final tool, just briefly, a, a commitment to peacemaking. All of these good things, the knowledge of God, a consideration of the gospel, a godly 
character that characterizes peacemakers, none of that matters if you're not committed to actually pursuing peace. And so a resolve is equally necessary. This commitment to peacemaking. Uh, we've mentioned Ephesians 4. You can write down Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. This is something we are charged by God to maintain the unity that the Spirit has accomplished. We have to labor to maintain that, to, to live that out in the church. And just to mention uh, two things that that's going to require of us is forgiveness and confession, or for confession and forgiveness. If you don't find yourself confessing your own sins, I'm not talking primarily about uh, making sure you're accountable, for example, in your small group. That's great. And we should be confessing sin and just being transparent before one another. But sometimes that can be more comfortable because they're expecting me to bring sin anyway, you know? If we practice the answering the core questions, I know that's one of them. And so I got to come ready to say, hey, here's the sin I've been struggling with. But what about when it's not expected, you know, ways you've sinned against your wife, she might not be expecting uh, a confession, ways that you may have sinned against a roommate or a child that you can get away with not confessing, not humbling yourself in a moment. A commitment to peacemaking would compel us to actually go confess where we must. Not making excuses, admitting I have dishonored God in this particular way. I've sinned against God, I've sinned against you by naming the actual sin, even what was going on in my heart, not just the external behavior that someone might have seen. Confessing all of that and then asking the question, would you please forgive me for being this way, for having these ungodly motivations or behaviors? That kind of confession. And as men, we should lead in that. No one should confess more in your home than you. You can provide a godly pattern in that way. And then forgiveness uh, which we already mentioned, extending, practicing forgiveness in the same ways that God himself has forgiven us, willingly, fully, graciously, sincerely, repeatedly. And so that kind of commitment uh, to doing whatever makes for peace, um, I, I guess you could add to that a godly confrontation, right? As you go about practicing confession and forgiveness, also practicing with others, godly confrontation and even being exemplary in that would also be a a useful way to pursue peace practically so we're over time um if you've got any questions i'm i'm here i'm not going anywhere but let me let me pray for us and ask god to make this teaching useful god these are, are great truths to reflect on your own character what you've accomplished in the gospel, what you've called us to be, what you've uh, given us the ability to do as believers, to, to please you practically. Uh, pray for these men, uh, for my own heart, for Grace Bible Church, that you would make us known for being peaceable men, not quarrelsome, but possessing the qualities of uh, a genuine servant of God, that we would act 
like your slaves and eagerly anticipate the blessing uh, to come when, when Christ brings his kingdom, uh, that we would be called sons of God as those who are characterized by peace today. Make this a, a reality in our lives. Uh, help us to be men characterized by these things, we pray in your name. Amen.